There's no way to sanitize this. There's no way to lighten this. There's no way, any way, to soften this for us. Jesus is scourged. He is crucified. He's mocked. He's insulted. He's jeered. He's laughing. Our Jesus is humiliated. As we walk through the story, Mark is taking very careful detail to show us that Jesus did not just die, but that he was shamed and humiliated along the way. There's a diverse cast of sinners here. We see the Roman soldiers. We see passers-by, people that are just happily be walking by the cross. We see the religious leaders. And even the criminals that are crucified with him all participate in shameful mocking of Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus being mocked? Is Jesus being mocked for the Sermon on the Mount? Is he being reviled for being a great, wise teacher? No, the crowds love that. What sparks this raise is the relent and the relentless mocking that we see here are the absolute claims that Jesus makes about himself. It's why they rage against him, and it's so often why we rage against him too. What we're going to do this morning is that, is that we're going to look at each claim and how Jesus is mocked in it. And there's an incredibly powerful irony that through every mocking jeer and everything that they are jeering at Jesus actually reveals the glory of his sacrifice. Everything they insult him with, everything they accuse him of, every, everything that they say he was lying about actually proves the uniqueness of his death. It actually proves the uniqueness of his sacrifice and of those things of Savior. In fact, this is so poignant in this passage that this has been referred to as the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. So we're going to shoot here to the three things. We're going to look at what claims actually brought the mocking to us. Two, we're going to look at how did Jesus endure this. Claims brought on the mocking. How Jesus endured that mocking. And how the changes to, to the Romans, Jesus was a royal pretender. The throne. And around his neck, as he is led to the cross this morning, and on top of the cross, there will be a sign there that said, that will say, King of the Jews. And this is where the criminal, as they were sentenced, would have to wear their crime around their neck as they walked to the cross. And what they were being accused of and what they were condemned of was put above their head on the cross. And above Jesus, it said, King of the Before we get to the mocking, yeah, I just, 
obtained your passes, I can't just read past the word scourging. And that gives us a little help here. Mark. Why is that? You ever notice that? That there's no sensationalized description here? Exactly what crucifixion was like. And while there's nothing here, Mark's restraint is the prisoner was stripped and bound to a post, beaten with a leather whip, woven with bits of bone and metal. the flesh, often exposing bones and entrails. One of the purposes of the scourging was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion. The scourging was often so brutal that some prisoners never made it to their cross. Women, in fact, were exempted from either suffering or witnessing the flagellum. It was terrifying. Flagellation, which Jesus was doing. Like it has to be in the back. So then the four soldiers, they bring Jesus out in this massive courtyard where there are literally 600 soldiers. And this is where they mock him. They don't mock him inside him. They bring him out to make sport of Jesus in front of 600 soldiers. They dress him up. They put a purple cloth on him. They put a crown of thorns and press it into his skull. So you, Jesus, who would challenge Rome, take this. Take that. If you were really a king, I couldn't do this to you or that to you. It was common practice take people like this and to make a mockery of them. To take people that would challenge Rome and to absolutely jeer and curse and make fun of them, make sport of them for their death. This was a common practice. They enjoyed this. They knew how to do this well. They bowed in jest before him. Hail, King Jesus. This, honestly, we can take comfort in that, that this did not take Jesus by surprise. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck, and my cheeks to those who pulled beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace. Spitting. Jesus knew this was written in reference to him. The, the, the challenging thing for us and the challenging thing must have been for Jesus at the time is that as he is giving his life for the world and for them and even for some of those soldiers in that battalion, he was not being greeted with a course of gratitude. But at the very point of his greatest sacrifice and pain, he was greeted with mind. 
that he looks nothing like a king in this moment. Some king, they would say, if you were a king, I couldn't do all. We couldn't smack you with this stick. This is where they were wrong. And this is where the irony begins. This Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it goes like this. Though he, being Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, not in jest, not in mocking, but that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here is the irony of ironies, that what the soldiers were doing in their bowing down and scourging and their railing, it wasn't leading to Jesus' humiliation. Every blow, every strike, every cheer, every insult was actually leading to Jesus' coronation. It was actually saying the irony is that while they were trying to humiliate Jesus, they were actually furthering his exaltation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and giving him the name that is above every name. God is in control. Mark, in Brown's account, is using this, 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 this uh, intentionally or not, this literary technique. It's, it's actually used in Greek tragedies written at the time, where the full significance of a character's words in one of, the, in one of these Greek tragedy plays is actually unknown to the character himself, but is known to the audience. And what we see through this here is that these people using these words, the irony here is that, is that the real meaning of what they're saying can be known to us, known to God. They have no idea how true their words are. Let's, let's keep going. So the soldiers rip Jesus' cloak off, which would have reopened all the wounds where the blood had started to clot against the cloth. And the four guys take over again. They make their way 600 yards through the streets of Jerusalem. This is the Via del Rosa, the way of pain. The Roman criminals would be asked to carry their cross. But Jesus, because of scourging, was unable to carry it. So the soldiers, under knife point, grabbed the nearest guy that looked like he could carry a beam, Simon. Who's probably a Jew from North Africa on his on the way into Jerusalem for the Passover. Mark includes his name and his town, son of Simon, and includes the name of his sons. Why is that? Just both Simon and Rufus and Alexander would have been known to the church in Rome. Through Mark was writing this and what is, I think, so fascinating about this is that if you want to know, he's writing If you want to know, if you want to validate the story, if you want to, if you want to find out for yourself, 
that these eyewitness accounts are true? You can ask them. They didn't run. You can ask them. And here's the thing that, that, that helps us, and maybe you're here this morning, and, and, and you're not sure that the Bible is true, and, you, and, and, and you've heard that it's really just a bunch of stories and legends. This is not the way you write legends. If you're trying to make something up, you don't name people for people to go find and validate your story. If you're making stuff up to embellish, you don't use specifics and cite eyewitnesses. See, everything could have been validated at that time and, and never been historically disproved. Thank you. Those who. Simon. God is even at work in Simon's life. Jesus is being tortured, led to the cross. God is at work in Simon. Can you, can you imagine? Simon had to carry Jesus' cross, which had already by this point been splattered with blood. Simon was looking at literally the blood of Jesus on his hands. Little did he know at the time that he may find out while listening to Peter's sermon in just a little while that this blood, this Jesus' blood on his hands was actually cleansing his sin and his family's sin and changing the destiny of his family. Because we know that Rufus is mentioned at the end of Romans, and Alexander is mentioned in the book of Acts. They became Christians. God's at work and changed his family forever. So Jesus is brought to Golgotha. Now in the movies, I understand why they do this for dramatic effect, but they show the cross on this hill outside of Jerusalem, way off in the distance. That makes for a great scene in the movie, but it's not what happened. Romans wanted to make an example of those who would defy them. So they would crucify men and criminals, not on a hill outside the city where no one could get to, but literally at the intersection of the busiest streets right outside the walled city. So when you think of crucifixion, don't think of thank you, nuggets, and for all you did for us, but do not think of this cross way on the hill, way outside, literally think of Broad and Boulevard. The next time you're getting gas at that intersection, 7-11, I drive by all the time. Jesus is being crucified right here at Chinelos. Or maybe on the south side, right? So think about Huguenot and Lothian, right? Right there at the Panera. Jesus, men, criminals, they crucified, not up on some huge hill, but literally just above that level. So the massive number of people could see what it's like to break laws, what it's like to threaten them. One commenter said, every totalitarian regime needs a torture apparatus. And crucifixion was known to terror apparatus and for them. Again, it just says they crucified him. Doesn't go into so much detail. But thanks to Mel, you can picture it. That the arms and feet were strapped and nailed to the cross. That would not kill the criminal quickly. Sometimes it took days. And in order to breathe, the criminal would have to pull himself up by his forearms on the nails or pushed against the nail to his ankles. And when the pain got to be too much or strength completed, he would suffer. 
This has been called the longest, most painful, cruelest, and shameful form of execution ever designed by human piety. So brutal, so brutal that even hardened soldiers would sometimes allow a crude painkiller to be given to the one who crucified. We hear about it. There's wine mixed with burn. It's a crude painkiller, it's like a narcotic. But we see that if Jesus can he experienced every bit of what our sins deserved without any anesthesia. By God's will and for our good, he felt everything. He was also on call. He needed all of his faculties there on the cross because we read that right up until the end, he is serving. He's serving his family. He's serving you and I. He's actually going to serve one of the robbers next to him. He's serving us all the way up until the end, feeling it all. Because God's plan was not just that Jesus would expire. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he would actually taste death for us. Second plan that Mark brings up here. Those who passing by this busy intersection, happened to be passing by on that, on that Friday morning. The writing. It's those that hurl insults, wagging their head and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Can you see the temple, Jesus? It's doing fine. You're not doing so hot. You who would tear down our temple. It's doing a lot better than you right now. Who's being destroyed now, Jesus? Hurled insults. Of course they're misquoting him. Just like they did in the trial. Because Jesus never said, I would destroy that house. He would say, if you destroy this house. That if you would destroy him, that he would raise him. But what absolute claim is Jesus actually making here? Of course, he's referring to his death and eventual resurrection. But if we focus, we really realize what he's saying. As the chief priest did, he's not just talking about him dying and raising, he's actually claiming to take the place of the temple. He's actually claiming to be the place, the center of worship, the center of culture, everything that the temple was to them, he is claiming that he is going to be that temple, that he is going to take the place of the temple where God would dwell with man and man would know God. That's why they're That's why the chief priests have given him up because he's claiming to take the place of the most sacred thing in their world. And the irony here, the irony here is that with furthering on this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, they are actually removing the need for their temple. They're railing against Jesus for threatening their temple, and by crucifying Jesus, they're actually removing the need for that very temple. 
They were saying that Jesus couldn't remove their great and glorious temple, but they, by actually destroying Jesus, removing the need for the temple. See, what looked like total defeat and weakness in Jesus, it was accomplishing everything the temple ever pointed to, but he never did. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, And every priest, standing daily at his service, offered repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies began a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he was perfecting for all time those who were being sanctified. See, all the things in the temple, all the sacrifices in the temple, year after year after year, all pointed to this very sacrifice. And by these two priests causing Jesus to be sacrificed, were actually destroying the need for their own temple. Irony of ironies. Right before them, on the cross, is the final sacrifice. That would bring me Jesus would now be the place where not just them, but all nations would draw near to God. The third thing soldiers mock. We've seen Jesus proclaimed to be king, passerbys mock Jesus for explaining the place in the temple, and now chief priests are going to mock Jesus. His plan to be their Savior. Verse 31. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, and we may see and believe. See, they cannot accept. They cannot accept this humiliating curse, Jesus. Their Messiah, rightfully so, was meant to restore the glory of their nation. Was to throw off their enemies. Yet this humiliated Jesus could not be him. In their minds, Jesus was supposed to throw off the Romans, not be crucified by them. And you can kind of be sympathetic with the chief priest a little bit here. Because maybe, maybe just like we go to the movies, and every movie that makes any money at all, this is the point where the hero in the story breaks his chains, says the magic words, finds the sword, slashes to the enemies, and comes down off the cross and saves them. Those are the monies that make movies. I'm sorry, those are the movies that make money. Okay, well, if you want to kill the hero, though, at the end, we call that an indie film, right? And it makes no money. <laughs> right? So these guys were in the blockbuster movies and understood that this is where the hero does his thing. In their minds, Jesus claimed to be their savior. It's finally beautiful. Here's the irony. At the very point that the Jews thought that he was disqualifying himself to be their Messiah, his silence and his standing on the cross was actually fulfilling exactly 
what their scriptures said the Messiah would be. Jesus is not just a conquering king. The Messiah would not just be a conquering king, but a suffering servant. Read with me in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, talking about the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken the transgression of my people. Jesus was fulfilling this We need to be reminded here that Jesus, even at this point, as they are saying, Save yourself. Jesus had options here. Spend a moment on that. Jesus had options. That this is where the temptation could have been embraced. I can imagine that there are legions upon legions.
This is why his, the the priest statement was so accurate. Someone has to pay for our rebellion. Someone has to suffer. Like Ephesians says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he had loved us, has made a way for his justice and love to work. He has provided his son on the cross to take what you and I deserve. And here's what the priests were saying. They didn't realize it. That either we have to pay for what we have done by eternal punishment forever, or Jesus pays for it on the cross. That's the only option that we have. Here's the irony. If Jesus comes down off the cross as the priests wanted, they are all lost. And we are lost. He can't save us. We will have to pay for our sins, but if he stays on the cross, like the priests say the Messiah can't do, he actually becomes their Messiah. Then they can all be saved, and we can all be saved. So the greatest miracle, which was actually a non-miracle, happened right in front of their eyes when they were asking for another miracle. Crazy. Leon Morris said this, he said, they claim chief priests claim that they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God if he comes down. But yet you and I know that he was the Son of God because he stayed up. And what about us? What about you and I? And all this mocking. Jesus is mocked by all these people. They hardened their hearts against him. But before we move on, I have to ask, have to ask us, how did we mock Jesus? Maybe we're not crass enough with slaps and insults. So try this one on this one. Our boss fires us. Our spouse hurts us. Pain floods into our lives. We're tempted, and often we do, we begin to mock the idea that God is not. Right? Some loving God you are. We may not say it with his tone, but, 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 but hear the mocking that could be in our hearts. Some loving God you are. Sorry, Jesus, I don't think I can handle much more of your love with all this happening. hard-hearted, just like those in the story. Cancer. Some great God you are, you don't care enough or are big enough to stop this. Just like the Romans and the priests, we, we said that God can't be king or our Messiah in the midst of our weakness. God, you can't be great and loving and near in my pain and weakness. If we're not careful, we will grow apart and our cynicism will take over and we will begin to mock the idea of God's love and his power just like we do. How can we stop this cynicism from taking over?
Isaiah chapter 53. How did Jesus endure this? He, he did not take the wine mixed with water. He did not take the anesthesia.
when we're attacked, when we are reviled, when we are criticized, unfairly, we're maligned, unfairly, when we are sinned against, when we are treated unjustly, when our own reputation
Just waiting for them to become problems. Here's the thing. We realize that we are under the same sentence of condemnation that we are putting them under. We realize that we deserve death for our sins as well. And because of this bread, you're about to take up in this juice. Because Jesus' body was broken for your sin, and his blood was poured out for your sin. You have been forgiven of a great sin that you, that you would have suffered for eternity for. But God chose, in his wisdom and his grace, to punish his son in your place. That is what we're saying when we take communion. That we deserve death, that Jesus took death for us. So if that is you, if you're putting your trust in that this morning, and you want that power to forgive, come and take the bread you're sitting here wondering about, still wondering about these claims of Jesus, I want you to respond by asking God to reveal Jesus to you. Reveal him to you in all these things so that you may be set free, so that you may be drawn near to God.